beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Thanks for joining us in the Mystery School today. We have a guest who's going to talk to us about facing our fear. And by fear, we mean a whole range of negative feelings, uh, anxiety, it's often called, and sometimes it's real specific, and sometimes it's sort of free-floating and non-specific. Uh, stress is another word, fear, stress, and anxiety, but it really runs the gamut from panic and horror to mild apprehension and just feeling a little nervous and we all know the feeling, and there is that fight-or-flight response, but there's also a kind of paralysis. I've heard people say the reaction to fear, stress, anxiety is actually fight-or-flight, freeze, or faint. So what do we do when we're feeling stuck? We're sort of frozen in time, and like a deer in the headlights, you know, you you're not sure whether to go forward, back, left, or right. And how do we manage that fear? Is it something we should try to avoid altogether? Probably that's fruitless. But since we're going to encounter it in our daily life and affairs, we need to know what to do with it. But before I introduce my guest, I want to talk a little bit about the fun drive, the winter fun drive for KPFK-FM. If you've been a listener to this radio station, you know that we survive mostly on listener contributions and donations and the pledges that you make during these fund drives. More than 90% of our funds come from listeners. We do not get any CPB money, Corporation for Public Broadcasting, those government funds dried up long ago. They're not available to us. Corporate money? Well, we're a non-commercial radio station. The whole idea is for us to generate programming that is free from the influences of big corporations. The original mission of Pacifica Radio, which began after World War II in the 1940s as a ban-the-bomb radio network, peace and social justice, and the founding of this radio station 61 years ago addresses the whole idea of a community radio station that addresses the particular needs of the local community. You've heard it said, I'm sure all politics is local. Well, that's the way we see the community that we serve. It's local. It's Southern California. It's you and your neighbors. And every so often, we come to you with an appeal for support. I was thinking how hesitant many people are to asking others for help. And as common and popular a sentiment as that may be, 
I'm proud to come to you and ask you for help to support this great radio station because the programming that you hear on KPFK, the news, the talk shows, the music is not available anywhere else on the dial. Our primary mission is addressing the informational needs of the women and men of Southern California. And so that's primarily who we're appealing to when we ask you to call 818-985-KPFK. That's 985-5735 in the 818 area code. We're going to introduce our guests now, and we're going to do regular programming. I'll talk to you again at the end of the hour, but you can use this time to call the phone room, make your donation or your pledge from $25 to $2,500. And there's some really cool premiums that you can request. It's been 12 years since I've been on the radio station, so I'm a little rusty and out of step when it comes to knowing all of the premiums. But I want you to support this radio station because it supports you, because we're friends, because we're a family of information gatherers and content creators. And just as we need you, you need us. And we're working together to bring you the news, the talk, the information, the music that we need now and will build upon as we create an ever better future for ourselves and our children and their kids too. So ring those phones. We'll do our interview and I'll talk to you again at the end of the show. 818-985-KPFK. That's 985-5735 in the 818 area code. And then settle in as we bring our guests on board. We appreciate whatever you can do. See if you can find $100, $150. Talking about a fraction of 1% of your annual income. Not a whole lot, but every dollar helps. Do what you can. 818-985-5735. There was a book that influenced me greatly a couple of decades ago by a woman who has since passed, Susan Jeffers. And the book I'm talking about is entitled Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And I always thought, wow, what a great title. It's like you get a whole book in half a dozen words. That title really says it all. And our guest today is a feel the fear and do it anyway trainer. She's a spiritual director. She has her own practice and she's consented to join us today. Shirley Riga. Shirley, good afternoon and welcome to KPFK. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I appreciate you being here and talking about what for lots of folks is a pretty uncomfortable topic. But, uh, you know, most of our fear we survive. Most of our fear uh, really doesn't have anything to do with danger at all, does it? Um, No, a lot of our fear is unfounded based on worrying. It's true. It's true. And we have lots to worry about. But your story, and I've read about you online, and we've had a, a discussion before doing this radio program. I know you've had some 
grief and loss in your life as as most of us have. I think you got an extra helping, actually. <laughs> uh, you want to talk about, I guess it would be the illness your daughter was born that first puts you into a crisis mode in your own life. Is that true? That's true. It was. It's true. She was born back in 1981. I had a two-year-old daughter um, at that time, and uh, my second daughter was born then. And um, we didn't know immediately there was a problem. It was uh, probably about seven weeks of age. She never, jaundice never left her, and she had got a very, very bad cold. And um, when uh, I presented at the pediatrician's, um, he didn't like the way things were looking and did an immediate blood test stat, that famous word, which um, started us on a journey, a long journey. And um, within the same day of that blood test, we are on our way to Boston Children's Hospital because there was uh, signs of uh, liver problems. And she was, I think, at that point, eight weeks of age. So it was very, very early. And at what point did you start the support group? Oh, gosh. Um, uh, well, I went through a lot of changes within the first probably six years of her life. And I'll call her Lisa, even though that is not her name. It helps me deal with it all if I put a name to her and it makes it more personal. And um, I probably started my first support group when she was about six years of age. And... That support group, I started the support group being a broken person and starting it. And uh, I found other parents who were dealing with not the same situation, but similar problems through the pediatrician that I was um, seeing at that time for um, my children's care. He helped me set up the support group. And so we met on a um, monthly basis and it lasted about three months. I really wasn't equipped to handle what comes up in a support group, and um, it kind of sorted itself out after three months. But then you also wrote a, a book about, uh, forgive me, I, the title had to do with chronic illness or right. parent for parents of, of uh, well, <laughs> for parents of the chronically ill. How did you title that book? I named it uh, Tools for the Exceptional Parent of a Chronically Ill Child. And um, that book didn't come out until 2016. But since she was probably seven years old onward, I journaled. And uh, it was a way to vent of the incredible frustrations, fear, worry, everything, um, trying to survive. And um, that book was born out of discovering things I was learning about myself and uh, creating tools for the situations that I would remember happened six months past. And I was actually in my journal so that I was able to track stuff to see, oh, my God, this happened before. I'm not going to let that happen again. What can I do different? And as the years went by, I started seeing more and more ways of handling the crises that would come up and um, not be so devastatingly impacted by things that happened with me in public or things that happened in doctor's office or with my worry or, you know, just pick a category. And the categories always changed as she aged. 
So, um, you know, it was a, it was a process that I didn't know I was writing a book when I started. I just needed to vent. And as I went, it culminated into more and more of a, a survival guide for living with somebody with chronic illness and being the caregiver and taking care of myself in the process without being eaten up by the worry and, and uh, fear. And you did this alone. You were separated from your husband at the time. Yeah, we were divorced. And though he was around and um, monetarily supported, I was the main caregiver going to the doctors and the hospitals. And he would take the, the seat where he would take care of our other daughter. We had a business that was self-employed, so he had to deal with that. He did what a spouse does, which is um, bring home the bacon, keep the house going, and um, it catapulted us into two separate roles. But the emotional support was pretty much on your shoulders. It was on my shoulders, right. And what do you do or what do you suggest to your clients that they do when fear, anxiety, stress feels like panic and you want to run or hide or uh, you just suffer so much depression and sadness. Uh, oh, everything. You experience it all. My idea of writing my book, the picture that I always get when I think about this book is that I would hope that a parent, when they have their kid on their hip and they're at their wits end with problems with whatever is happening with the chronic illness, that they can just grab this book, open it anywhere, read something, and it gives them a sense of they're not alone. Because that's what I experienced through the whole thing is I felt alone. Um, I didn't really have a support group. I had I got into therapy right away and did, um, you know, talking therapy that gave me an out. But the therapist was a great listener, but they had no idea. They've never experienced living with with what, you know, was going on in my life. And so I kind of, um, I had to become not only my children's advocate, my daughter's medical advocate and educational advocate and everything else, I had to figure out what it is I need to take care of me. And it wasn't a neat process. It was a messy process. I, I've had, a, you know, it's, it's just been a very, very difficult road. But I had to figure out how to do it. And at what point did you find the Susan Jeffers book, Feel the Fear, and do it anyway? Yeah, I've thought about that. I think I found it about the time that she was about eight to nine years old. So the first um, eight to nine years were extreme uh, problems with uh, liver infections and hospitalization after hospitalization to the point that we were hospitalized with her maybe 10 to 12 times a year. And um, I couldn't, I had a hard time taking care of my other daughter because I wasn't there a lot. And um, I was on this roller coaster of panic and just coping. And so I really feel like I disassociated from a lot and just, um, I at that time I had a lot of problems with um, overeating because that was my stress reduction. And um, it got to the point that I couldn't even do that. I'd throw up because I was so stressed out. So between therapy and um, journaling and 
you know, the whole process of the people that used to be my friends, a lot of them couldn't handle the fact that I had a sick and possibly dying child. And a lot of them kind of just dwindled away. We, I used to call it sorting out the deadwood in, in relationships uh, because people don't want to hear that I, that I have a sick baby. And they want to say, well, isn't she better yet? No, she's not. Well, when's she going to get better? I don't know. You know, and it's it's a it's a depressing thing. So I went through that whole process of feeling abandoned by friends. But the but the real friends are the ones that stuck around and they're still friends today. And um, and it was maybe two of them in, you know, a lifetime of friendship. And because um, it's hard, it's a hard subject. It's one of the things that I, I feel like and I don't want to jump around, but I feel like I lived in a subculture underneath the normal culture of what I was living in because I had a chronically ill child and people didn't want to talk about it. One thing people rarely discuss is how contagious emotions are. So if somebody gets angry at us, we're likely to get angry in defense of ourselves. And if someone is frightened, that's frightening. So yes, our friends running is part of their fight-or-flight response. Absolutely. Uh, We're afraid, so that frightens them, so they run. Yeah. And we end up feeling alone and abandoned, which just compounds the problem. It's a hard thing. I I had support. I had um, problems with support with my own biological family. My, um, you know, I grew up in a very fearful household, which is something else in itself. So that fear was, was a, uh, and I didn't realize it, but fear was an operating factor in my lack of self-esteem and my lack of feeling confident in anything because um, I believe my father had a nervous disorder. And so as I ventured off into adulthood and then dealing with this, my parents wouldn't come visit in the hospital in Boston, which was two hours away because of their fear of coming into the city. They wouldn't do things because of fear. And I didn't really have a support system. Um, I ended up taking care of my relatives because of their reaction to my life story. And it gets pretty exhausting when I'm exhausted from dealing with what I'm dealing with. You know, I, I don't know how I survived at times when I talk about it. So did you have to confront your own codependency in terms of you taking care of other people, making sure they're okay? Oh, huge part. You know, as I got into therapy uh, shortly after she was born, I probably started within two to three months of age. I started with the goal of coping with having a, a child with this severe medical problem. And the problem itself, I should say, she was born with what we thought was one pediatric liver disease, biliary atresia. But after they did the surgery to repair, to allow her to continue living, they, through the biopsy, they found another liver disease. So she was born with two liver diseases from in utero, which was extremely rare at that time. So being in a teaching hospital, um, we were the subject of a lot of um, inquiry. And um, as I went through therapy, learning to cope, I started uncovering the fact that 
of um, childhood abuse that I suffered that I never really came to terms with. And my own lack of uh, individuality, I and I was so codependent on everything that people would look at me and I'd blame myself for everybody's problems. And so I went through this process, three years of therapy of just figuring out who am I? And in that process, I discover who I am and how do I accept the fact that I have a daughter who is so sick, she's going to die before before I do. And um, it's a real hard road to hoe in acceptance. And so, um, yeah. I'm tempted to go down the road of codependency and talk about that, but the show's about fear. So let me steer it back into that direction. It's a fascinating topic for me. And I have my own stories of what has frightened me in my life and my refusal to acknowledge that it was fear. Mm -hmm. You know, I I had a lot of other names for it. As I said before, uh, I think men in particular are raised as boy children to deny that we're afraid. You know, a man might say, well, I'm not afraid. Um, I do have my concerns, Mm -hmm. however. (laughs) I've heard that before, yep. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, translation, I'm terrified. Right. I'm still healing from my childhood at this age because now I've got so many more tools to say, okay, let's look at this again. And just this morning uh, in my meditation work, I worked on my gratitude for having the father that I did because I learned some things from him I still use. And I've been spending my lifetime focusing on the stuff that hurt. And, um, you know, it's it's time for me to focus on the stuff that was good. Well, I I want to talk more about this. You've brought up so many things that I can relate to. And I'm sure those of us uh, people in the audience are flashing back on their own life. Uh, There's a reason we have that stereotype of the Viennese psychiatrist stroking his goatee and saying, Val, tell me about your childhood. You know, yeah. <laughs> That's what life is, recovering from childhood. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I have so many uh, questions. And in fact, I want to tell you about a dream I had mm. right after this uh, short break. It was a, it was a, a breakthrough for me. We're listening to uh, Shirley Riga. She's a spiritual director. She's a feel the fear and do it anyway trainer. She's also a medium and sensitive and empath, a psychic, whatever term you want to use for that wonderful ability to uh, develop rapport with other people. Mm. And we'll be right back after this short break. You're listening to The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. Hi, this is Michael Benner, and I want to thank you for recognizing KPFK as one of the few channels for progressive news in Southern California. There's obviously no shortage of hate radio out there. They're trying to frighten you, and they have plenty of followers. Over 75 million people voted for Donald Trump, so we have to stand strong. Be resolute in our beliefs and support each other. If you're not a member of KPFK, now is the time to renew or become one. Join the resistance. We're the voice, but you are the power behind us. 
Go to kpfk.org and become a KPFK supporter with your donation. Do it now. We're 90.7 KPFK and kpfk.org. Resistance Radio, powered by the people. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. We're heard throughout Southern California in Los Angeles at 90.7 FM. In Santa Barbara, KPFK can be heard at 98.7 FM. In northern San Diego, 93.7 FM. And up in the high desert, Ridgecrest and China Lake at 99.5 FM. And, of course, streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Pleasure to be with you. Our guest is Shirley Riga, and we're talking about fear, about stress and anxiety. Shirley is a spiritual director and uh, offers many counseling services in her private practice. I came to know of Shirley through a group that continues to exist on the west side of Los Angeles, supporting Susan Jeffers' work, the late Susan Jeffers, and her now classic book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And we've been chatting about uh, the fear that we all face in life, some more than others, and some of us are better at standing our ground and confronting all of those feelings and the thoughts and behaviors that flow out of them. And some of us, we just want to run. And we have coping strategies that, uh, you know, may lead to alcoholism and drug abuse or being a workaholic or destroying other relationships and all because we're not sure what to do with all of this fear. Again, often we don't even call it fear. We'll just say, well, I'm nervous or I'm, I'm stressed or um, mildly apprehensive or nervous, but it all falls into that, that same category. And, um, sure, I wanted to tell you about a dream that I had, uh, as a, a young man. I guess I was in my early thirties. I think that's when I began to realize I was an adult. <laughs> yep. And, uh, that I didn't know everything. Uh, until that time as a teenager and, and a guy in his twenties, I thought I had it all figured out and maturing, of course, is the process of, uh, for me anyway, becoming aware of how little I really knew, um, about others, but more importantly about myself. So I wake up one morning and my brain is just filled with this, I'll call it a dream. It was almost a nightmare. And it was simply me in a crowd of people, sort of like a uh, a mixer or a big house party of some kind. And there were a um, hundred people in this room and all this chatter broken up into small groups of people that were talking. And above this chatter, all these conversations going on, there was this uh, disembodied voice in my head saying, all these people, Michael, are dreaming this dream. They all have input 
into this dream that you're having right now. Every one of them except you. What you think doesn't matter. And I sat there on the edge of my bed and pondered that for a couple of minutes and made the leap. Oh, my God, that's my life. Where, as you were saying, we check in with other people to see how we're doing. We search for acceptance and do they like me or we worry about what they might think to the extent that I'm denying myself. I'm, I'm unaware of, well, what do I think? And I finally started laughing to myself when I realized that self-confidence and self-esteem and my self-image and self-approval and sense of self was not something that I could delegate to other people. They all had the word self <laughs> in front of them and that this was my job, right? And I care about what other people say, how they feel about me, but not to the extent of rejecting my own opinion completely, right. Right. you know? And that that's what personal integrity is, you know? Absolutely. So know yourself and then stand up for yourself. Right, right. So, so that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> yeah, boy, what a demonstration of coming to terms with that line that you drew that you're not willing to do that anymore because you really could feel how it feels to not have an opinion about your life, <laughs> you know, not have an idea about what others are thinking of you because you have a right to have your own. Well, that's powerful. It, it, it also occurred to me that uh, children are codependent. Children are dependent. Absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with that. Obviously, a child has right. to be dependent. But if we are raised in a healthy, nurturing environment, if we are loved, if we are listened to. Yes. Yes. And respected. Yes. Parents will say, well, I talk to them all the time. Yeah, well, do you listen? <laughs> Is it okay for your child to express their anger to you and even encouraged to talk about how they feel? Then as you mature, that dependence gradually becomes a kind of independence. But that never happened for me. They, my house, like yours, I guess, you were not as a child, allowed to express your feelings. Absolutely not. Nor my individuality. Exactly. I didn't even know what that was. I, I was so into conformity and trying to please other people. I didn't even know what personal boundaries were. I had to learn what that meant. Because I, you know, I, I took pride in the fact that I'm an open book. But there I was, open book, everyone could tell everything that I was thinking and gave their opinions and I would be up and down like a thermometer with, um, you know, other people's opinions. So much of this is finding a balance. Where is that fulcrum point between the polarities? Where is that middle point? And it's dynamic. It's always moving. So we want to have our privacy and our dignity and yet we do. We are social creatures, and, and we do want to be 
liked by other people and accepted by other people. And you were talking about binary thinking, how everything in your childhood, in your home was black or white. Right. And I think one of the problems that that creates this this binary idea that anything that's different is opposite. Mm. Like if it's a football game or a baseball game or a basketball game, there's only two teams and one's going to win and the other one are the losers. Right. Good, bad. Right. Yep. In the Olympics, you can get a silver medal and not be a loser. But uh, uh, <laughs> but that's the Olympics. That's the Olympics. That's right. How rarely one gets there. That's yeah, very rare that coming in second, being second in the world is not a loser. But if we're in a relationship where only one of us is right, then any difference, no matter how minor, is seen as opposite and in opposition and therefore threatening. Yeah, it's true. I know Susan Jeffers talks about the pendulum effect when learning new behavior. And I remember just the whole subject of boundaries, learning to exercise boundaries. Um, I was like a toddler in uh, stumbling, trying to figure out what my boundaries are. What does boundaries mean? Who am I going to offend by calling my own boundaries? When do I open my mouth? When do I not? And so the pendulum effect is you start out on one side not knowing anything. The, the pendulum swings to the other side, too extreme. And as you learn, you eventually come back to a balance. And it, it's not, you know, uh, cut and dry, black and white like that, because we, we have to experiment. And every time we learn, and if we want to put the word fail on it, which I don't want to, but there's a learning in every time something doesn't work out right so that the next time we get better. That's the whole process of, of finding the balance in the pendulum effect of, of um, creating a new behavior. And um, that in itself allowed me to ease up on, I have to do it right or else, you know, or else I'm bad or else I'm wrong or else I'm going to get in trouble or else something's going to happen bad. So I, I've never forgotten that. Reading her book became a Bible for me because it was it was the parent that I never had in in um, telling me that it's it's all okay the way I am and let's think about what you feel that makes you happy and does this make you happy and then she uses her own examples to uh, explain situations I I remember when I first. When my daughter was first diagnosed, I had such a hard time making decisions because I didn't want to make the wrong one and um, somebody else has to make it so I don't get in trouble. But here I am, the parent, with my daughter in the hospital. My then husband is, you know, two hours away dealing with what else was needing to be dealt with and the doctors are looking at me to make a decision. I was, it was traumatizing and uh, if the decision is wrong, it could make her cry more. It could make suffering. I ended up um, going to a um, continuing education course on learning how to be assertive so that I could learn how to make decisions. And one of the first lessons we had was the teacher brought in a variety of pairs of shoes. And he says, OK, we're going to go shoe shopping to the class and um, pick out the kind of shoe that you like the best. And it was like. 
well, this one is is comfortable and, and I should wear that because, you know, of this reason. And that one is this color and I should wear that. And everything became somebody else's should until he kept encouraging us. Which one do you like? Which one do you like? What makes you happy? And it was it was a silly shoe. But the process that went on inside me allowed me to grow into saying, what is it that I want? And and being able to when the real time comes for making decisions or choosing a, you know, a dinner at a restaurant or whatever, um, I learned something in that process. And it was uncomfortable learning it because I was moving past one side of the pendulum way over into the other until I could find the uh, the center again. This may be the point where the psychology of all of this becomes more spiritually oriented, the idea of do I love myself enough to be assertive, to be mm. eccentric, to be extroverted, to be weird, to be strange, to be not liked by everybody. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of folks have a problem with the concept of self-love. I'll speak for myself again here because if I become too egotistical or if I'm perceived as being arrogant and pompous and full of myself, then nobody's going to like me. So I better play small. Can you relate to that? Less than thinking. Oh, yeah, I sure can. My less than thinking stuff. Absolutely. Because if I don't play along, I mean, one of the things I've learned is that underneath every reaction I have is some kind of fear that I'm not going to be loved, I'm not going to be acceptance, that I'm going to be abandoned, that I'm, I'm going to do bad and then therefore judged. And it's all based on um, any behavior that I have is based on my thoughts about that. As I have, you know, and it takes time, determined to build a relationship with myself, I, I never liked myself. I never um, could understand the concept of self-advocacy. I mean, one of the things that Susan Jeffers put in her book was, imagine for just a moment that you count in this world. And I have said this to groups of people, and people start crying because they can't imagine saying, believing that they are, they are good enough to count as somebody important. Their ability to take up space in this room, to speak something that is their truth. They have a right to that, and they never knew that before. So I started believing that I count, that what I have, my opinion about things that may not be everybody else's, I still have a right to it. I still have a right to to laugh at something without having somebody incriminate me because I'm laughing out loud. I mean, so many things I worked through time after time, and it's all based on it, believing that I I count and that I deserve love. And as I move into, you know, my, my years here where I, I am able to look behind me, I'm realizing that I have to be my own best friend. I have to love myself like I want to be loved. I have to accept myself like I want to be accepted. I have 
learned not to abandon myself when I am scared because that's what I used to do. I used to abandon myself. Off she goes. She's nowhere around. And um, it has been a repeating pattern that it isn't somebody I need to find in order to give that to me. It is me giving it to myself. And um, it's a huge lesson. I've heard it said to me for so many years as I, you know, search and try to find peace of mind and happiness. And it, it, all, it is all coming back to that. And, um, and we have to gentle ourselves in the process and learn tools that help us deal with the crap that happens and the fear that's around and the, and the contagion of the fear. And um, it is a mindset that has helped me sort out so many wrinkles in my life so that I can, um, I do have peace of mind. It's not all the time, but I do have it. I, I am able to survive the death of my daughter, which happened in 2014. And I didn't think I would survive it. I could have predicted that I would have left myself, but I'm surviving it. And it's all based on these tools of um, the self-care. I know I'm jumping ahead. No, not at all. Um, this is not a linear thing. So we do need to leap around a little bit. I, I, I guess it's paradoxical that we in time realize as we come to accept ourselves that we will not become arrogant or pompous, that the more we know ourselves, the more we love ourselves in a spiritual sense, the more humble we become. You don't, you don't get arrogant and pompous and think you're all that. A healthy self doesn't have to prove anything to anybody. And talk about reducing stress and anxiety. If we can, <laughs> if we can relieve ourselves of the burden of having to constantly prove I'm okay by look at all the people that accept me. Of course, I'm working really hard at that, right? If instead we just like, well, say la vie. Some people love me. Some people don't understand me. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter much. I have a group of people who know me and love me, and I have my family and, 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 and these close friends, and I have my relationship with nature, with the universe, with God, with the cosmos. And you begin to feel that connection of oneness, of wholeness, that puts the whole idea of self in a different perspective. You're still an individual. You're, you're, you're unique. <laughs> We've got the fingerprint evidence and the DNA proof that we're unique. But right. though somewhat paradoxical, we're also extensions, each of us, of one whole thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and we are human. And we are souls in a human body. And, you know, our humanity... We have minds that, that hold memories of hurt in our past. And one of the things that I have learned in this process that takes time is I've held on to memories of hurt 
with um, myself in the uh, guilty chair for whatever I did. And then and then it that hurt and guilt sits there. I've learned to forgive myself through the process of, um, you know, knowing myself more. One of the hugest things that I learned within the past uh, probably four years was I used to just carry around the story of how terrible my father was. And I had people agree with me, especially other siblings in my family. But somebody said something to me once that said that, um, well, I know who it was. I follow Matt Kahn, K-A-H-N. He's a wonderful spiritual teacher. And he said in one of his talks that, and I will put it in the in the language of how I use it. I forgive you, Dad, for forsaking your light in my life. Because essentially, my father didn't listen to his heart. He paid attention to his mind in all his judgments. And that became who he was. And he forsake, he, he forgot about his heart in raising his children. And... Um, having that information has helped me release this hold of hurt I've had on my childhood, which really has held me back for a long time because I care so much of wanting his acceptance that I really never got probably until on his deathbed um, that I, that it was part of my growing up. And so now I, I know that my father let go of his own, connection to his heart in his lifetime and and I would like to believe that he is learning that on the other side where he is now as he reflects on his life and I'm just a product of the hurt that that he was hurting himself with I, I hope I'm being clear about that because that was a huge thing for me well I think it probably strikes every one of our listeners a little bit differently but sounds to me like the power of compassion, forgiveness. And if we can break that cycle, I bet if we looked at your father's father or my father's father or his father and his father and his father, this machismo that goes all the way back. Absolutely. To a time when it was needed to survive. Right. But we, we're, we're more civilized now. Though that may not always be obvious if you watch the news, but that's what compassion is. What a wonderful way to learn a lesson and break the cycle so that we don't pass that on to others. And the compassion goes, you know, for ourselves, bringing compassion into ourselves, that we do the best we can in every moment. And if we don't, we learn from that moment to go into the next moment. Every, every, situation is a learning um, that we can take. It's a great way to live life. Shirley, how can our listeners find out more about you? Give your book title again. Uh, again, we both want to recommend the Susan Jeffers book that's still in print, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. But your book, your website, email address, what's the best way for folks to get a hold of you? Um, the best way to reach me is through my website, ShirleyRiga.com. And if you, if someone just wants to, I have a, um, well, I'll just say the name of my book. The name of my book is Tools for the Exceptional Parent of a Chronically Ill Child. It's available through Amazon. 
It is um, Barnes & Noble, I believe, as well. Uh, it can be Googled. Um, I do want to say f- about the book that it is a, a book that does contain my story, but most importantly, it contains tools for caregivers as well as caregivees. It has been helpful to those across the board. But um, I have, you can access me through my website and send me an email through my website. I think my phone number is in there as well. And um, I, I have an active blog that I have been doing over 300 days now through um, a silent meditation practice that I do online with a group of people who like to join us. And there's information on there. And it's just all about living in the heart, being honest with ourselves and um, finding community, because I believe there is such wealth in finding community um, as we as we learn and go through this classroom called life. Trusting love. Yeah. Trusting love. That's really it. Starting with ourselves first. You bet. And Riga is R-I-G-A. That's correct. Thank you. Shirley Riga. And Shirley is S-H-I-R-L-E-Y-R-I-G-A dot com. Good. Shirley, thanks a million for sharing your story and uh, putting it out there. You know, I think this kind of testimony really helps people to say, I'm not alone. I'm really not alone. I feel alone and alienated so much of the time. But others suffer. And... uh, if we reach out and help each other and share the lessons we've learned and then, as you say, the practical tools and techniques that so many thousands of dedicated women and men have uh, have put together, pioneered, created, and uh, brought to the world. And Absolutely. We just touched on meditation, breathing, and relaxation, and all of those skills uh, are such an important part of this. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, let's do it again down the calendar page, okay? Sure, sure. I appreciate your compassion, and I can see that you've been a lifelong student of learning a lot about yourself, Michael. So thank you for doing your work. I, I have. <laughs> and still <laughs> am. <laughs> yep. yep. It never ends. Shirley Riga, my guest on the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. And we'll be right back after this short break. You're listening to KPFK. The Car Show has aired on KPFK since 1973. And perhaps you have a car that's been sitting in your driveway since 1973 or 1993. Or maybe you're still driving it, but it's time to say goodbye. Get rid of that thing and help KPFK at the same time. Your donation of your old car gets it out of your life and helps KPFK as a tax-deductible donation. And not just cars, trucks, boats, and motorcycles are also welcome. It's easy. Just call 877-KPFK-AUTO and we'll handle all the details. Let your old car help KPFK. This is KPFK Los Angeles, the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. And we're in the winter fun drive right now, the February fun drive. And this is a time when we ask you to support what supports you. As some of you probably know, I was a commercial broadcaster for over 30 years in Detroit for a few years and then later in Los Angeles. Well, beginning in the mid-70s, uh, I came to Los Angeles. And one of the things that I was excited about, besides 
Hollywood Bowl, Hollywood and Vine, uh, the beaches, the Beach Boys, <laughs> Disneyland, and everything that screams Southern California, was there was a Pacifica radio station there. Where I grew up in southwestern Michigan, Chicago did not have progressive radio. And when I worked in Lansing in Detroit, Michigan, there was no progressive radio like Pacifica. So even though I was looking to work at a commercial radio station, because Pacifica is a volunteer operation, the idea of being able to listen to it through the airwaves was thrilling. I was so excited about it. And then as my commercial broadcasting career came to an end and my business became more successful, I had time to volunteer. And so in the early 90s, 92 or 93, I began doing a program on KPFK called Intervision. used to be on Thursday nights at 11 o'clock before Alan Watts. And then we went to Friday afternoons for many years until the end of 2007 when my wife Doreen and I moved to Hawaii. Well, we came back to Los Angeles 12 years ago and I've been enjoying my retirement. But I feel so fortunate now to be back in this spot, Tuesdays at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, doing what we're calling the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School and proud to come to you asking for support. And every time we do this, we tell you the need is great. And it always is. It always has been. It always will be. But I have to tell you, I've never seen the need greater than it is now. We've cut our budget by 30%. The handful of people that do get paid, uh, that staff has been reduced by a third. And we're barely hanging in. And we need your financial support, your donations, contributions, your pledges more than ever before. I was thinking about it. A person that makes $50,000 a year, if you donated 1% of what you earned to KPFK on an annual basis, that would be $500, right? If you donated one quarter of 1% to the nonprofit charity that is KPFK-FM, that would be $125. Think of it. That's a pretty average income in Los Angeles, $50,000. If you made $100,000, one quarter of 1% would be $250. The truth is, we'll be happy with whatever you can offer. You really have to search your conscience to make a decision about what can I afford. But this is a charity. And may not be as appealing as Save the Starving Children or Save the Baby Animals, and they show you those pictures on TV of freezing dogs and cats. And there are so many really good charities that need your support that I understand the demands. The politicians are always asking for money, too, like they're going to create the change. But I want you to think about what this station provides you personally, what you get from this radio station. 
I'd like to suggest that you listen to this station during hours that you normally do not listen to the radio. Find out what else we have to offer. Go to kpfk.org and look at the schedule of programs. I think you'll be amazed at the wide range of programming that's available here. Content that you are not able to get any other place. So call the phone room right now, 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK, and make your pledge, make your donation. I'd like you to remember the sustainer circle, too. This is real slick and easy. You can ask about it when you call the phone room, or you can go to kpfk.org. On the banner, it says support KPFK. Click on that. And in the drop-down, choose Sustainer Circle. You can make a pledge of $5 a month, $15 a month, $25 a month, $100 a month, whatever, again, you can afford. But that's an auto-deduction that's painless. You don't have to remember a thing. It's tax-deductible at the end of the year, and you get the comfort and the peace of mind of knowing that you're supporting a great institution that supports you. 61 years in the Los Angeles community providing progressive news, talk, music, and information that improves your life, that allows you to be a more responsible citizen and help us in our resistance against the despotic forces of fascism and and tyranny that are knocking on our door and indeed invading the capital. There's a lot that's wrong with this country, but when we defend democracy, we're defending the Bill of Rights, free speech, the right to protest and air your grievances, freedom from religion as well as freedom of religion, search and seizure protections, and so much more. So move to the phones now as we bring this program to a conclusion. Support us in our winter fund drive for 2021 with your pledge, your donation, your contribution. Call now, 818-985-5735. Yeah, there's premiums. There's some really cool stuff. There's the standard coffee mug and the tote bag and just a ton of other stuff if you're interested in some sort of perk or reward for donating money to this radio station and its mission. But you maximize your contribution when you don't even worry about the premium. Just make the donation. $25 or more makes you a KPFK member and gives you access to special programming and some really cool other features as well. So call now. 818-985-5735. Call during this program and say, I love that Michael Benner is back on KPFK because I really like that programming on personal and spiritual development. It rounds me out in addition to all the other great information that I'm getting. I want to support the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School as well on KPFK, okay? And join us every Tuesday at 1 o'clock. Thank you so very, very much for tuning in. Be sure and tell your friends we're here Tuesdays at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. 
This is Michael Better for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK Los Angeles.